Well, we are continuing in our series, Unexpected. And last week we talked about uh, the unexpectedness of maybe God might answer that prayer that you've given up hope in. And today we are moving on to uh, a sermon titled, I Didn't Expect to Celebrate My Family Secrets. And we are entering into a season in which if you are fortunate in 2020 to be able to have a household of Christmas celebrations, um, you might experience this, but uh, we're probably reminiscing on a family experience that we might not be able to have this year. Uh, But when you think back, if you have been blessed with a larger family, about family gatherings around the holidays, and you have all these people coming together, and there's different dynamics of all of these people involved, and there's different uh, expectations and different preferences and desires, and and sometimes you have that person that you're like, well, are, are, are they going to be there this year? And maybe you're slightly hopeful. Maybe they might just skip out this year. Uh, there's a messiness involved with family life. And so we have those family members, I'm sure, that uh, we somewhat act like that they don't exist anymore, that they just their names aren't meant to be mentioned uh, we don't want to go down that path and talk through those stories, and there's certain kind of taboo family stories that we want to avoid, and sometimes that gets attached to people. And if you have kids, you've gone through the experience of trying to decide what to share with your little ones about these family stories, because whatever you share with a little kid might be parroted back out to that person directly or at the family dinner table, or all sorts of inopportune times. And so you're trying to figure out how to prepare kids for this family dynamic, and what to share, and what not to share. And some people have a special love of not only knowing about the family that exists now, but doing the research of the family that has gone on before us. Uh, I have some family members who love Ancestry.com and those kinds of sites, and maybe you know uh, whether you yourself or others in your life who have loved looking up the family tree and, and figuring out our ancestors and their stories. And, and I kind of jokingly think about, well, you know, if, if our own family isn't enough of a mess, we want to learn about the mess that has come before us. And we enter into today's story with a family mess. Where Matthew is doing the genealogy work, he's doing the messy work of talking about the people who have come into this story, who are brought into it, into the Christmas story through the past and and the family that Jesus emerges within. And I always find it important to talk about why genealogies are done, why they matter, what, what kind of different reasons people do them for. And one that I think we don't think about as much of, but if you think about Old Testament genealogies, Many of them were constructed in periods of exile, and they become an act of protest, an act of life continues. My enemies might try to destroy me. They might try to uproot me from my home and take me to a distant land, but I'm going to tell a story that predates them, and my family's story continues. And so there's some beautiful, powerful stories of genealogies in the Old Testament that we kind of read read over, and we're like, okay, I'm kind of bored. But to those people to talk about, I'm continuing this line, uh, that really mattered. And, and sometimes we do these genealogies for honor, of talking about, you know, look at this person that is a part of my heritage. 
And I think for our kind of modern times, we kind of more easily, let's say we can get to the 1800s, we can get to the 1700s, maybe you can get to the 1600s, but at some point you start having issues with documentation. Uh, but don't you know that everyone who's looking in is wondering, I wonder if any of these people are going to be well known. I wonder if any of them were royalty. Anybody lived in this kind of grand state? And 99% of the time, most of everybody on there is probably farmers, right? Because until the urbanization move, you needed food and most people were farmers. And, but we're all looking for, maybe there's that little glimmer of some celebrity status that I come from. Uh, and, and we don't maybe go down the family tree line if there's a little bit of shame. You know, if you share the name of anybody who's infamous, uh, it can be a little bit troublesome going about your day and, and trying to talk, talk to people and meet people, and they're like, oh, that name reminds me of so-and-so. Uh, and so if there's somebody notorious in your line, maybe you don't necessarily want to have gone that far on your family tree. Maybe you veer to the side. And so there's some shame that maybe you might want to avoid. But Matthew tells this story of a genealogy that has both honor and shame intermixed into a messy story that Christmas emerges out of. And so in this genealogy, in this family story, uh, it, it goes something like this. Person A was the father of person B, and person B was the father of person C. And it goes on, and there's around 30 names or so in this list. And some of those names are highlights. Some of them are the honoring, uh, the people that you honor and that you celebrate. Uh, it's the Abraham or Judah and these kind of like big names. Uh, it's kings like David and Uzziah and Hezekiah and Josiah. But even these highlighted people also had some messy things in their life. You know, we treat them as just the kind of pinnacles of faith and these great heroes, but they also struggled. And just to mention Abraham to begin, you know, Abraham had his highlights of his faithfulness of going and following God, but Abraham also, anytime things got a little bit dangerous for him, started passing off his wife as his sister and hoping that he could avoid maybe somebody else's jealousy or his willingness to go along with, with, with um, having a child with his slave, or when his wife then doesn't like the family dynamics of the slave and their child, is willing to have them be shunned and push away, pushed away. These are messy lives. Even the people who are honored had messy lives. Think about David. We'll talk about David more in a little while, but David had the high highs of really great following after God's heart, and also some low lows. But Matthew doesn't just give us the people you would expect, just the heroes of the story. He also interjects little moments that remind you of some of these family stories you might want to ignore, you might want to hide from. And some of them are small little things, like when you mention Judah, you can mention his brothers. And Judah and his brothers didn't treat one of their brothers very well and sold their brother Joseph into slavery. And you kind of think when Matthew's telling a genealogy, and you know eventually we're going to talk about Joseph, you know, alluding to the brothers in the Joseph story, they didn't always treat each other well. But there's especially some other scandals that Matthew alludes to. He alludes to several women in his genealogy uh, that are, I don't want us to immediately think that the women are the scandalous elements of the story because they're often not. 
But the women remind us of a scandalous moment in the genealogy. And so we're going to start with Tamar, who is from Canaan. And in the genealogy, Matthew pauses to say Judah, you know, was the father uh, through Tamar of two sons. But that story is a little tricky, and it's probably one you don't hear very often in church, and so I'm going to summarize it because, one, it highlights the scandalous nature of stories that our Bible is willing to share, and two, gives you a taste of what's being shared in this genealogy. So Judah, Judah has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Salah. His oldest son marries Tamar. The Bible says that Ur was wicked in some way. It doesn't give us why, but he dies. And in that culture, you were supposed to provide for the widow by allowing their bloodline to continue. And so a family member is supposed to have a child with the widow so that the bloodline of that individual would continue uh, on. It's a little bit strange in our culture, but that's what was expected. And so Judah gives his other son Onan to Tamar. And then Onan won't go through with the act fully. Go read Genesis 38 later. It'll be even more descriptive than you imagine. But he won't fully consummate this relationship so that, that Tamar can have a child. And he keeps uh, ending a little bit soon and, and therefore doesn't give a child uh, to Tamar. And then it says God finds that wicked and now Onan is dead. Judah's thinking, I've lost two sons I don't really want to offer my third son. And so he has a thing in the story of, you know, you should wait a little while, let him get older. But he has no real intention of letting Tamar have a child. And so, in the story, Tamar takes initiative on her own. Judah goes out. He sees the tent of, of who he assumes is a prostitute. I'm not sure in 1000 BC uh, what kind of shop signs or clothing appearance or what might let you think that this is the prostitute's tent. But Judah goes to this tent thinking, I'm going to take this prostitute. And he said, and she asks the question in the text, what are you going to offer me? Because part of this is a payment. And in this ancient context, he says, I will give you a, a uh, I think it's a goat. It's either a goat or a donkey. This animal. I'm going to pay you the animal. She says, show it. You know, like, until I get this, I want to know I'm actually getting payment. And so Judah gives her his ring, this cord, and his staff. And so these things are meant to be trinkets to say, until this donkey arrives, uh, you know I'm going to pay you because I'm going to want my stuff back. They do what you would expect that they do. Judah goes on his way. He sends the goat to go be payment. They can't find this prostitute anywhere. I'm imagining the servant here. How much does he know? He's got to know something, right? He's got to know who he's paying. He's got this, he's like, okay, well, where's, where's Tamar? Or he doesn't know the name. Where's the prostitute that's supposed to be here? He asks around. The villagers say, there's never been a prostitute there. <laughs> what are you talking about? And Tamar's a little, conf uh, sorry, Judah's a little confused and they have this conversation, they decide, you know what, instead of becoming a laughingstock, just taking this donkey around until people figure out where this prostitute is, why don't we just say, let her have my stuff? <laughs> Let's stop. 
Fast forward three months in this chapter. Judah finds out his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. He decides, I want to burn her at the stake. Let's execute this woman for being sinful. She was sexually uh, devious. She shouldn't have a kid. I... My sons were supposed to be the ones who take care of her. They weren't taking, like, how dare she? Can you imagine that? (laughs) Knowing what he's been through and what he's done, and he says, like, I want to order the death penalty on Tamar. Tamar shows up. Guess what she has with her? The ring, the cord, the staff. She's like, hey, here's your stuff. To which Judah realizes, my bad. And blesses the situation, lets her be on her way. And the Bible doesn't give like this, like, oh, Tamar was bad. It was like, look what Judah, how he wasn't faithful to how he was supposed to provide for his family. And Matthew's going to mention that story in his genealogy. You're going to talk about the the story that leads to Jesus' birth and towards this, like, pristine holiday that we love all of the, like, great joy and hope for, but... You're going to mention Tamar in that list? And it goes on. Another woman that gets mentioned in the story is Rahab. And we know Rahab is from Jericho. And uh, this story might be more well-known to you because she was a temple prostitute along the wall who helped the spies of Israel spy on the area of Jericho that led to Jericho's destruction. And her family gets Uh, saved and promised that they would be protected in the midst of the battle and the war that was coming. And so we mention Rahab. We mention Ruth, which we have a book of the Bible named after Ruth. She, every time you see her name almost in the book, it mentions, oh yeah, she's a foreigner. Ruth, the Moabite woman, or in some translations, Ruth, the Moabitess. And she's this outsider who most of the biblical tradition would say, you're an outsider, you can't enter into God's assembly. And the story is, is that she was so faithful that she's faithful to her mother-in-law. Says, I'm going to go back with you to your homeland. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And then her mother-in-law comes up with a pretty good plan for her. You know, Boaz, he might take you in. If you show up at night, you might dress yourself up. You might get yourself ready. Show up at his bed. Ask him what you want me to do. And then... Things will be good for you. And this evening leads to Boaz, seen as protector of her, as caring for her, as not acting on anything in that moment, but that he protects her, he marries her, takes her into his house, and that part of their bloodline is King David. And part of that book's purpose is to say, you know, even the most faithful, even the like pinnacle king of Israel is someone who can have foreigners in the midst of their bloodline and can be a part of our story. And so we're going to mention Tamar, and we're going to mention Rahab, and we're going to mention Ruth. And speaking of David, uh, in this genealogy, I love the way that Matthew words it. Um, he, He says, he doesn't ever say Bathsheba's name. Instead, he he kind of hints around it. And he says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah is a really good call out that in this hillless hill region that that Jerusalem is in you can be in a palace up on top of the hill and you can look out on the rooftops of all the houses around you 
And one day, when he should have been out at war, he's at home and he sees someone bathing and he says, I want that woman. And he takes the woman and when she becomes pregnant, he is panicking. And he decides, let's bring her husband back home from war. And if he's here and he's with his wife, maybe the timing will work out and no one will know. But then Uriah is more faithful and says, I'm not going to take advantage of my status. And, and while my brothers are at war, I'm not going to take pleasure of home. And so he refuses to go home. David's plan falls apart. And so David sends Uriah off into the front lines of battle on a mission meant to end in Uriah's death. And the prophet has to come to him and tell him, uh, look what you've done. You, your secret's out. But all of these family secrets uh, didn't stay secret. And Matthew is willing to share them as a part of the story that leads to Jesus' birth. And you'd think that You'd want to hide those things. You want to talk about someone who's perfect and you should follow after and you'd be like, oh, let's only say the good stuff. But it gets kind of weird at the end of this genealogy if you've followed along with Matthew. He gets to the end of all of these names and all of these stories and he concludes with, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born. And there's the hint that there's a scandal involved to Jesus' birth of, wait, what's, what's going on here? And this whole genealogy we've been following is about Joseph. Is that Jesus' bloodline? Like, there's a whole question of, wait, why are we following Joseph's genealogy here? Uh, we kind of take a sidestep at the very end, and suddenly it's, hey, this is Joseph's bloodline. And he married Mary, who was the father of Jesus. And there's this, this hinting that God is doing things in the midst of stories you wouldn't want to share, things you'd want to keep hidden, things that you would, wouldn't be telling everybody about, and that God somehow moved in the past and God moves in the present. And so Jesus' family story is a messy story, and it's a messy world that he enters into, and he's in good company. We're all in a messy world with messy family stories, and we should take comfort and, and find hope in the fact that Jesus emerges in a story of darkness and a story of mess because there needs to be transformation. If the world was perfect that Jesus enters into, then why does he enter? And so this mess is a part of the story. And so Jesus shows up into the mess to bring order. He, he shows up uh, into a lost world to bring rescue, into a, a sinful world to bring forgiveness, into a broken world to bring healing into an abused world to bring justice. And the messiness of that family story, it matters to share it. It matters to know that things weren't perfect. Uh, because to celebrate salvation is to celebrate that there's a brokenness that needs repairing and is being repaired. And so instead of hiding from our family secrets, we should be bringing the divine light to those moments, to that broken thing. But how many of us are willing to actually go there emotionally, physically, verbally, like to share things about where there's brokenness in us and in the world around us? What are those family secrets you want to hide from? You don't want to tell those stories, uh, but are actually moments of mess that God might bring healing in the midst of. And I think about growing up 
at home where you can't share these stories. And I think about all of the messiness of my own life and uh, being at a church where it didn't feel safe to share because if things have to look perfect, if it has to look like I'm joyful because God is good and, and everything's great, I don't want to bring mess into that. Everybody else seems like they've got their life together, but they'll, they'll, I'll be outed. They'll know that my life's not perfect and I can't bring my mess into that. And maybe you can't bring it to your friends because you're trying to keep your status, keep your, especially think about teenage years. There's so much honor and shame and, and be like, I can't share about this messy stuff because what are they going to think about me? And so you can be dealing with uh, death and loss. You can be uh, around drug and addictions and, and people being angry and shouting and, and cursing and uh, people being sent away from your home and kicked out, people going through depression and suicidal thoughts, people dealing with debt and poverty, people dealing with all sorts of things. Even some of the people who I thought had their life fully figured out were meant to be like, I'll be a father figure in the midst of some brokenness and later to reveal the kinds of things that they were struggling with, the kinds of things they were tempted with. And, and none of us felt safe to actually bring it to light and heal about it, heal over it. And as long as it stays secrets, it, it doesn't get mended. And so I wonder, who's willing to share some of that baggage, some of that, the junk of our life that needs healing, to be real, to be authentic, to be honest. And I, I know people who have wonderful stories of their life who are like, I don't really want to share that story because like, I'm not that person anymore. That was so long ago. But like, that's the story we need to hear. We need to hear the stories of transformation. We need to hear where the brokenness is that gets mended in our lives. And so we shouldn't shy away and, and our Bible doesn't shy away. And that's one of the things I love so much about our tradition is we have a Bible filled with stories of the heroes of our stories being shown to be regular people who mess up, not trying to make them just perfect, uh, but they, just like us, mess things up. And so when we learn to, to not shy away from this mess, but to talk about it, not to not to celebrate the baggage of it, but to celebrate the hope of what God can do in the midst of it. Uh, we move away from the, uh, the rightful claim of being a hypocrite when we only tell our stories in the perfect world and we don't share that there's a mess in that. Uh, people think we're being hypocritical. But share from the authentic, real place that you are. And if we want Advent light and we want Advent hope in the darkness, we've got to also mention the fact that there's some darkness out there. And so let's not act like some of our family or friend or coworkers or whoever that group is for you. Let's not act like they're just exiles. Let's continue to reach out with hope that maybe there might be restoration, maybe there might be healing, maybe there might be a coming together again. Let's share with our kids or with our metaphorical kids, the people that you're investing your life into, or you're mentoring, you're training up. Let's share with them the stories of the good and the bad. Let's be willing to share our, our family's story over time uh, in all its fullness and wholeness. And let's be willing to proclaim the good news 
that there's good news in the midst of that brokenness. And there is a hopeful place if you can get past the fear of I can't share that story to a place of coming to God and coming to a family of faithful and being willing to heal together. And so are we brave enough to bring our secrets to that light today? Lord, let your light shine on us. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we know that there are times where we're like Adam and Eve in the garden and we hide, where our shame causes us to disappear. And in our, in our brains, we know that we can't actually hide from you, but yet we, we often try. And Lord, I ask that you would, might move in the hearts of everyone who's worshiping with us, that we might choose to show up to you because you are always present to us. And Lord, let us have faith and hope that your light might bring healing to every dark place in our life. And whoever we've given up hope on, whoever we've distanced ourselves from, let us pray that you might bring healing to them and healing to us, and that one day we might all be reunited in you. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.